welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. We have a special bonus on one of our favorite cases this week, Sarah. I know the Menendez case. Who doesn't love that case, man? And we're doing this one with Simone from 90s Crime Time. It's a great show. Great show and a totally different perspective. We're different a little bit older than her. Different perspective and different tempo. I always listen to it and I'm like, God, man, you're so calm. Yeah, you know? she's great. Yeah. And so we did a collaboration this week with Simone. And this is it. The following is us with Simone from 90s Crime Time discussing the Menendez case. Yeah. Hope you enjoy. Hello. It's May 5th. 2021. My name is Simone, and this is a special edition of 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. And with that, let's dive in to this special edition of the show. And just to preface, today's episode is a special edition because last week I mentioned that this episode is going to be the last part of a murder that had to do with an Ivy League. Back in March, I talked about the Harvard murder-suicide, and last week, I talked about the Gina Grant case also having to deal with Harvard. And today, I'll go ahead and tell you all, today's murder case actually took place in 1989, but the trial that followed the murders was highly sensationalized during almost the entire 90s. And if you're a true crime enthusiast like me, I can almost guarantee you, you know what trial I'm speaking of. And that is the crazy and heavily followed trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez, accused and found guilty of killing their parents, Jose and Kitty. And to take a deeper dive into this case, I have the privilege of welcoming two fellow true crime podcast lady hosts by the names of Sarah and Laura, and they host the podcast greatly and simply titled Ivy League Murders. I love their show because I've always been fascinated with the upper class and murder 
and the Ivy League community surprisingly has no shortage of scandal and crime, and I'm so glad Sarah and Laura have agreed to come on 90s Crime Time to talk about the Menendez case with me. So, welcome to the show, ladies. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great to be here. And usually, I do a lengthy introduction talking about the year and the place where the crime happened. But since today's show is going to be in discussion style, I'll give a quick intro, and then the ladies of Ivy League Murders and I will dive into the trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez. The year was 1989, right before the new decade of the 1990s. And in the well-known and glamorous Beverly Hills, California, many people here are lavish to the bone. Mega mansions, posh yards, designer everything are just some of the ways this city of the wealthy is described. Also in this city, in 1989, a self-made wealthy executive named Jose Menendez and his wife Kitty were raising their sons, Lyle and Eric, and for them, life couldn't be better. However, on August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty's world would be shattered and their wealth would no longer matter when that evening their lives would literally be blown away. When they were murdered in their own home by their own flesh and blood, Lyle and Eric. Even though the ghastly murders occurred in 1989, the trial that followed would become one of the largest spectacles of the 90s. And now you're going to hear Sarah, Laura, and I talk about the sensational crime right now. There's a lot of layers to this case and a lot of, frankly, controversy in many ways, Mm -hmm. especially recently. So that's what we're kind of looking at. I was telling these guys before that Laura and I, we grew up basically with the Menendez trial. And I was actually in LA during that time as well. So I think Setting up the context, basically, of the Menendez trial and verdict is very important. Yeah, and I mean, I also want to mention, you know, Sarah and I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts with parents who worked at Harvard. And so that's kind of the inspiration that growing up in the perfection of the Ivy League kind of looking. And I think this is very relevant in the Menendez case is you see the perfection from the outside, but you want to look behind and see what's really going on. So much of that is true with the Menendez case, because when the murders happened, everybody said, look at this perfect family and what's going on behind the mansion walls. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what we look at at Ivy League murders is a lot of cases like that. I hate to say it, but where we, you know, we did, we lived through these, I guess I'm in this age group and remember these trials, remember the murders. My husband actually has interviewed Jose Menendez many times. I've actually met several of his coworkers. Mm. So I have some kind of experience with Jose Menendez. I've never met him, but I've been around coworkers of his. So in the 2000s, after this happened, you know, I had been around people who knew Jose Menendez. So I kind of have my own views of what he was probably like as a person. Sarah and I have also read the book a Robert Renth book on this case and done a lot of research. So I think we have both a pretty balanced research on what we think about the case. And I think at this point, I mean, they confessed to murdering their parents. So it's really not what happened. I think it's much more a case of whether or not one believes that they were abused and if they were abused, if that kind of mitigates the level of guilt. And that's really the argument. The actual murder took place in August 1989, 
And the killers of Jose and Kitty Menendez were their own sons, Lyle and Eric. And it was a trial sensation. I mean, pretty much you all probably know this case, even though it was in 89. And they were so handsome to a lot of people. And I've mentioned before, I have a fascination with wealthy people and murder. It's like so taboo. Like wealthy people can't commit murders. And if they commit crimes, it's usually white collar or something of that nature. But in this case, they were young. They were greatly educated. They were trust fund kids. And now they have pretty much murked their parents. And the original idea with all these publications of like Dateline and 2020 and all these people magazines and things like that have said they were just spoiled rich kids who wanted their inheritance early. However, newer research suggests that that was not totally the case or that was only partial the case because they did buy some obscene things after the murders. However, they're saying now that it could have been a buildup of things such as abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. And we're going to talk about that right now. So I moved to LA a week after the riots. And the context of LA, especially at that time, was the right prior before the Menendez trial, mind you, was the Rodney King where the police officers got off, and and also O.J. Simpson. So the prosecutor's office in L.A. was under tremendous pressure when the Menendez trial came about to get a conviction, basically. It was like, get a conviction at any cost. There were two trials. In the first trial, the defense was allowed to present this abuse testimony. And, and essentially, the abuse testimony is that Jose Menendez sexually abused both of his boys. There was abuse anyway. It was a lot of control. A lot of crazy crap went down in the Menendez house. It was not a happy childhood for those guys. And I believe that just from everything going on. In their second trial, the judge just did not allow any of that evidence to come in. And it's a funny thing. I'll just speak a little bit about having testified at a lot of criminal trials and murder trials. There is a resistance to demonize the victims. There is this kind of thing where sometimes the victims get put on trial, basically in character assassinated. And Mm -hmm. maybe that fed into it a little bit. It was like, hey, wait a minute, these two got gunned down in a very bloody way. The shotguns reloaded three times. This was no unintentional murder. This was incredibly deliberate, incredibly brutal and bloody. But I do think there's this reluctance to put the victims on trial, but that's what the defense wanted to do. So that's where we're at without having seen that evidence, which I believe is compelling that Jose Menendez systematically sexually abused his kids. One of the things that came into the trial, too, was it wasn't just that. I think what was trying to be presented is that both boys felt imminent danger from their parents. I think that's a little bit tougher in my mind to prove. Was it suggested that maybe, I think I read somewhere that, like you mentioned, Jose Menendez had sexually abused his sons. Wasn't it sort of like Kitty Menendez sort of turned a blind eye or covered it up or something of that nature? Because I thought I read that because like until you guys mentioned it, I thought like everybody else knew this is all for the money. But then once I read about the abuse claims, I was like, okay, so she probably wanted to keep up appearances and turned a blind eye to the abuse 
her husband allegedly did. I can only say allegedly only because he's not here. That's what I feel because he's not here to defend himself. I agree. I agree. I don't know for sure. I agree with allegedly he's not here to defend himself. I think it's pretty uh, proven that he was very verbally abusive. There's plenty of evidence. You know, like I said, I mean, he, he was verbally abusive to his colleagues. He was a verbally abusive man. And that's a well-known fact. It was a very dysfunctional home. Kitty was an alcoholic. She was an unhappy woman. She abused prescription drugs. She was not a loving mother to these boys. She did ignore the controlling, abusive nature of the father. Whether or not there was sexual abuse, I don't know. I think there may have been. To me, it doesn't mitigate assassinating your parents. So both things can be true. You can be abused, but that's not. This was a very, very deliberate, planned, premeditated murder. I don't believe that all their life was, they thought their life was in danger. And I do believe that there was a lack of remorse and a heavy financial motive. They were adults, they could have left. But yes, Hitty definitely was a neglectful, absent parent. I don't think there's any doubt. There's plenty of support and evidence that about both of these parents. I think Sarah's right. You know, people don't want to vilify them, but they really, I mean, it was a very dysfunctional home and Everybody testified, you know, the tennis coaches, the people closest to them testified to that. I can't say if that's true or not. There's less substantiating evidence. There's a cousin who says that. The brothers say it. They never said it to their psychiatrist. They didn't say it until, you know, they used it as a defense. No, I don't agree with that. When they were kids, they talked to two cousins, one female, one male. And they said, my father is touching me. Does your father take showers with you and touch you down there? And one of their cousins was like, no, like that's freaking whacked and wanted to go Mm. and talk to his mother about it. And I think that, no, you're not going to have a rape kit from that time period. I mean, if that's the kind of evidence you're looking for, you're not going to have it. But what you do have is pretty compelling testimony from two cousins, actually, one female, one male, who both say that, I think, I believe it was Lyle in both cases, I'm not quite sure, approaches them and asks them these questions like, is this normal? Because it's so hideous to think about ancestral rape like that. Somebody who you're going to to protect you, that's the normal relationship, is violating you. And so although there's not physical evidence of that, I think in families where that unfortunately occurs, there's this code of silence around it. And Kitty was part of that. You had a lot of testimony about Kitty. Jose Menendez would take one of the boys down into a room and close the door. And Kitty would be like, oh, no, no, no. Like, don't bother them. Don't go near that door. And the boys say that Kitty admitted that she knew that Jose was abusing them. It's unimaginable to me as a parent that you would allow that to happen as a mom. But it unfortunately, it does happen. Whether there's absolute proof I mean, look, if nothing had been said when they were kids and they get on trial for murder and then all of a sudden there are these abuse allegations, the reason why they didn't tell the therapist is that the father had a direct line to the therapist. He bugged their rooms. There's no safety in admitting like, yeah, dad's fondling me. If he has a thing with the therapist where the therapist is like, I'm going to tell everything that the boys are telling. Well, of course, the boys are going to be like, yeah, I have a perfect home and everything's great. And what's the Well, I, I mean, the therapist didn't tell on them when they admitted they killed their parents. The therapist is a whole sub drama. But uh, listen, 
saying that, you know. Even if they were abused, I can concede that that may have happened. It's just, I just come down on the law and order side of it. It's like, even if they had been abused, they still went out and they bought guns and they assassinated Mm. their parents. They walked into a room with their parents watching a movie and they Mm. reloaded the guns and then they covered it up and they went out the next week and bought Porsches and Rolexes and businesses and showed zero remorse, flew around the country. So they did that and now they're paying the consequences. And I don't really feel like they should be released from prison early because now I feel sorry for them because they got abused. It's like they made a decision to commit premeditated murder. Mm. And I was going to go sort of piggyback off Laura here because I read also, like I obviously am reading up on this because obviously you ladies were around when this all happened and I was just born. It was fascinating to me. I was just curious and questioning because I read that the day before the funerals, One of the brothers had bought three Rolexes, like you had mentioned, Laura, that they bought all this. And I'm not dismissing their abuse claims by any means, because I didn't know about that until a few weeks ago. They had brought three Rolexes the day before the funerals. And if my parents were murdered, I don't think I'd be buying anything. I'd be in the bed, devastated, just really down and out, but they were living it up. And so I'm not, like I'm saying, I'm not dismissing their abuse claims. I don't know if maybe if they were abused, maybe now they felt they had the freedom to do as they please, that they're now happy, I guess. Or were they literally just in it for the money? Because that's kind of confusing to me because I guess we'll never really know what happened because Kitty and Jose are not here to defend themselves or tell their side of the story. But with the abuse claims and possible trust fund, it's like, how can you really decipher maybe what they really plan to do if I'm coming out clear? I think that played so badly for them. Of course. You know, it, it was like the optics on that were terrible. You're absolutely right, Simone. It's like, you know, how much did these kids care for their parents if they're out there? I mean, I can understand staying in hotel rooms because you don't want to be in the house where you killed your parents or where you're pretending right. your parents were killed. But going out and buying 90 grand worth of stuff in a matter of... And then hiring a $60,000 tennis coach to hope to go pro. <laughs> like. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I've known people who were abused. And I mean, even though they may hate the parent abusing them, there's still a connection there. And they're just, Eric seems to show some remorse later with Dr. Ozeal, but Lyle doesn't. I do think there was a lot of control on the part of Jose Menendez. Jose Menendez is an interesting character himself. He came over from Cuba with nothing I mean, literally next to nothing. And he was a brilliant man. I think he was a very unpleasant person. He was extremely controlling, but he was self-made. And I think I think the boys, you know, they have said, you know, they had this like grudging admiration for him, but he was the kind of person where I don't think the guy was even, I mean, he's not here to defend himself. You're absolutely right. But I don't think he was capable of kind of love. I think it was one of those, like, if you're going to do tennis, you know, you got to do it 12 hours a day. You got to, you know, you got to, I suffered, you got to suffer, you got to, you know, I mean, I've heard this about a lot of like, actually like tennis parents, like they just drive their kids you know, like to these extremes. And I am not saying that the murders were justified at all, but I do think that, and this is what we cover in Ivy League murders a lot. It's like, you might have great wealth, 
but there's this like poverty of like love and, and poverty. Like there's this emotional poverty in many ways that you, it, kids need, I'm sorry. Like you need that, you know, when you're growing up, you can have every single toy on the planet. And, and maybe I'm not justifying the spending spree, but I think the spending spree was kind of like, that's how they were rewarded in many ways. You know, they had no values. I mean, and we see this a lot with second generation money, Sarah and I, it's like the first generation makes the money and they, they have like a real mission in life, a real point, like a real purpose, you know, to make the money, to build the business. And then the second generation, it's all available to them. And they're often the parents are kind of absent or too busy to raise them. And then these kids have like, they have no purpose. Everything's provided. I mean, Lyle's taking limousines to class at Princeton. It's just so pretentious, so over the top, but not doing well in school. You know, it's all about superficial values, nothing internal or important, no real purpose. Well, I mean, I'm just wondering though, too, and they say sort of for that second case, right? Mm -hmm. If that evidence, if that defense evidence was able to be presented, the jury ended up with two possible outcomes, which was basically like life in prison or death penalty, basically. So they ended up with life in prison. However, had they been shown that evidence, would that have been a mitigating factor in what their judgment was? Because I kind of look, I feel like in a trial, you do have to be fair about it. It's got at least like you get the good, the bad, the ugly, and right. you just you present it all because a jury is trying to make a decision from all the facts. And if you don't have all the facts in front of them, I don't think that's fair. How is it anything but a first degree murder when you plan, you buy the guns, you plan the murder? I mean, that's first degree murder. That's the definition of first degree murder. That's true. That's first degree murder. However, if you have to come to that decision, you've got to come to that decision after being presented all the facts, not just some of them. And also given what the optics were in the press as well, which was the optics in the press were like, these were two rich, privileged, spoiled brats, psychopaths, blew away their parents, goodbye, see you later. They were like pretty much vilified, hated before getting all, I mean, nowadays you have all the access to getting, it's almost many facts as you want to, as long as people talk. But I mean, in like like 1990, I feel like it was still kind of limited to what you may or may not know. And they took one side maybe as, like you said, Sarah, that they just blew away their parents for the money. And I didn't feel like maybe they just didn't get a chance to, I'm not sticking out for them by any means. Maybe they just didn't get a chance to explain everything until they were literally on trial. Maybe the public was so consumed with the rich, handsome, young adult children of the wealthy people that they didn't even take in consideration the alleged abuse. People always say that, well, the press and the, it wasn't a fair trial. It's like, that's the world we live in, you know? Yeah, it's true. Never, that's, you, you're never going to go to the moon for your trial. I mean, if you true. are, if you're a celebrity, if you're a high profile person and you commit a crime like that, it's going to be all over the press. Like that's the, true. that's the world we live in. It always has been. But there's certain filters. I think there's fairness. And then there's certain, look, I think they were like, given like, a like, lot like, of advantages that a no, lot but, of people aren't given is, you, you know, yeah, well, no, no, they were but if the press wants a sexy story of course so so the sexy story in this case was like look at these two guys who had everything 
and they blew it all away and they bought Porsches and they're jerks and let's just, yeah. you know, it, that, that was sexy. It was parodied on SNL. Yes. I was going to get into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and- I think almost now you have these shows about them. Now you have this resurgence of popularity and this huge TikTok community. Mm-hmm. And people have this big simp because I think people are more sensitive to abuse and victimhood. And now people have a lot more supporters. But I just don't feel a tremendous amount of sympathy for them because there are other people who are abused who have committed crimes I do feel sympathy for. But I have done a lot of research on them, and I just don't feel like there was any remorse. They didn't tell the police about the abuse. They didn't tell anyone about it until they had a defense attorney, the best money could buy, I might add. Most people don't get these type advantages. True. Let's talk for a second about Leslie Abrams. I I just wanted to say something real quick for the listeners, and you guys, you probably, I mean, you all have researched this way more than I have. But I just found it highly, not funny, but kind of interesting that it was the mistress of Dr. What it, what was his name? Ozeal. Yeah, Ozeal. Who overheard and was being nosy. And that's when she called police. Like, I, like the yep. mistress of the doctor. That's what I've read. I don't know if that's exactly true, but. You're talking she, about Luann. Oh, Judelon. Wow. Judelon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Judelon. I don't think she overheard. I think he told her and then. Oh, really? She, I think he told her and then they, they made up that excuse so he would lose his license oh let's talk ozeal for a second okay so so ozeal the police were beginning to suspect the menendez brothers right so ozeal had been hired by jose menendez prior to be a therapist to the boys and like we had said all information would go right back to jose and kitty there was no confidentiality I i don't agree with that it's actually proven, Laura. You can, you can read about it. But so, Ozeal, yeah, but Ozeal did not disclose everything. No, but it was obviously an open channel to whatever was discussed between Ozeal and the boys would go back to Jose. Absolutely insisted on it. Oh, wow. uh, well, anyway, we, we can dispute it. But after the murders, sometime around October, Eric goes to Ozeal and makes this admission that, yes, we did it. Yes, we killed our parents. Now, they call Lyle. Lyle comes in and he's pissed off at Eric. And Ozeal, he kind of threatens him that Eric says he's pissed off that Eric has told Ozeal about this confession about the murder. And that Lyle at the end says, like, good luck, Dr. Ozeal, which he took to be a threat. So there's some pretty solid rules between psychiatrists and patients, obviously, for confidentiality. Right, right. right. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court, whether Dr. Ozeal could reveal what was said in that session. So the Judelin, the mistress of the doctor, and that's a whole other psychodrama kind of subset here, but she claims that, hey, I heard Lyle Menendez threatening Dr. Ozeal. And then they did sound tests to show, like, there's no way you could hear something from where Um, she was sitting to the office. It was total bullshit, but she, pardon my French, but she, sorry, you're in Nashville. It was total BS. No, 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 no. No, no, that's that's totally different. The outskirts are conservative. Nashville is pretty liberal. Okay, okay. Yeah. But 
they did sound tests and showed that you could not hear anything. That basically Dr. Ozeal had told his mistress, Judelin, about this and that she could testify that she had heard this and it would get around the confidentiality issue. But that's something that uh, an author of a book said, like that disputed testimony. Oh, was you know? it? Yeah, because nobody can say that Judelin Smith, she testified that she heard that. Oh. And then, and then they say you couldn't have heard that. I mean, it's disputed testimony. She said she heard it. I don't agree that that tape should have. And I, I think they should be in prison, but I don't think that tape should have come in. Oh, gotcha. Only because I read it on Town and Country magazine, which they had like a whole expose about it and said like twice that she had said it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And like, I don't know if you guys know this. But the other angle I like in true crime is about like messy affairs. So I was like <laughs> the mistress nosy and told the business. I mean, it makes sense what you all said, too, that he actually may have told her and then she went on to say something. So I don't know. But that's what well, another angle I thought was like. It gets oh messier. Well, she well, lived with him and his wife. Yes. Exactly. Oh, wow. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Really? Yes, she did. And she's a piece of work. Definitely. Wow. Sorry, but yeah. Oh my no. God. They had this whole big, she claimed abuse on Dr. Ozeal too, and that he had, oh, she, the, the, there was a whole psychodrama going on. Oh, and talk wow. about Talk about a messy <laughs> affair. You know, I think she said she was like losing it. And he said he had the sick patient who needed help. The wife didn't know he was having an affair with her. Well, how did she? He said he needed to help a a sick patient and moved her into the house. Oh, wow. And and it was his mistress. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, back to the trial. California, man. I'll never understand. I will never understand it. It was crazy. And I think he was trying through this whole thing. He was worried about losing his license to practice because so much of what right. he was doing, he could have lost his license for. He's sleeping with, with his patient. Yeah, he's sleeping with his one patient. Mm. And he had no, I mean, his ethics were very, I mean, he was basically milking Jose Menendez for money for the therapy. The whole thing was very unethical. Yeah. Very, very unethical. In fact, he was continuing to charge the Menendez family huge amounts of money and not even after the alleged threats that Lyle Menendez made. And they were thinking that he was basically kind of extorting them, like, I'll let this tape slip. Yeah. You don't, I mean, I don't know if anything oh, yeah. was ever proven. Do you know that. what? I actually totally believe that if Judah Lynn Smith never came to the police, he never would have come forward. And he would have kept going after them for money for like ever. He was very fearful though. I mean, he. I, I, don't, to... I think he knew they were a money I don't think he was that afraid of them. I think he knew that they were going to keep giving him money. Apparently, he moved himself, his wife. I'm not sure where Judelin was living at that point, but he was fearful enough to move his house. I guess that's a fair point. If my patient killed his parents, I'd probably be, and told me I'd probably be scared too. That's a good point. But I don't think he was going to tell the police. I think they probably would have gotten away. I mean, I don't think that he would have ever told the police. It's very interesting, though, that that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And then they finally did agree to play the tape in court. That's correct, right? Yes, because it all comes down to whether he felt threatened. And basically, I don't agree with the judgment, but it all came down to Eric saying, you know, uh, like, what did he say? Thank you and good luck or something. And he construed that as a threat. So if the therapist feels threatened, they have the right to disclose it. 
I think you would also need to hear the whole tape to get the context of it. You know, Lyle's pissed off. It's not like he's just like, hey, good luck, doctor. You know, like there's some rage behind because he's being exposed. He's being exposed by his younger brother. I wanted to back up, though, a little bit. I do have a really hard time with the idea of imminent threat that the boys felt they were under imminent threat. The one thing that is dodgy for me is that Lyle went to Princeton and was essentially away at Princeton. Eric had gotten into, I believe it was USC he had gotten into. Is that right, Laura? And and so he was psyched because he was going to be able to live on campus and get away from the household and everything like that. And Jose had said, no, I want you to stay at home. And this is, you have to believe Lyle in this and that Eric said, look, I need this abuse to stop. If I live at home, it's just going to continue. The other change of ethos, you guys, in this is that I believe during one or both of the trials, Eric's sexuality was basically not used against him, but it was like, hey, are you gay? That was like, we're going to bring this out. It's only interesting in terms of like, I don't think that would happen these days, but it was still an issue back then. So, I mean, I think they, as being a major issue, yeah, it wouldn't be an issue today for sure. Just so the listeners know, they've exhausted all of their appeals. Right. I read that. Yeah. They have three options left to them. And that's clemency from the governor. Which, which I know, don't think they're going to get. They're never going to get, you know, a pardon. Yeah, they're never going to get that or, or new evidence. So, I mean, if you think about no. the high profile nature of the crime and like Leslie Van Houten, who is one of the Manson women, has been in prison for 50 years and she's been granted parole and they won't release her. Oh, really? Yeah. So she's been granted parole and Governor Newsom has blocked it because it's such a high profile case. Yeah. So I don't see the Menendez brothers. So now they're trying to show new evidence and that the laws have since changed. Today, you would, would be able to show the abuse. They wouldn't be able to keep it out the way they were able to in the last trial. And I think that's probably more Sarah's point. What do you guys think? Do you think that they should be eligible for a new trial? I, don't. I do. No. But <laughs> that's only because of the abuse claims. And I just personally believe in rehabilitation. Now, it is really gory and bad. And I do believe it was premeditated murder. I really do. But on the other hand, I do sort of believe the abuse claims due to all this evidence of people say that uh, Jose Menendez co-workers, he was abusive to them. I don't know if it's maybe just like a blunt boss. I don't know. But still, if he's abusive to them and he's abusive to his sons, you know, maybe they didn't just spend all the money just to get the inheritance. I don't know. But I just would like to see that get a new trial. I personally, if they did get a new trial, I don't think they'd be let free. I don't. But maybe they deserve another chance. I don't know. Maybe. I, just, I mean, I think if they got a new trial, they probably would be. I mean, they've served a lot of time. I just, yeah. I don't think it mitigates a premeditated crime like that. They're paying the price. And it really is their word against dead people. They're not here to defend themselves. And those people are dead. They're gone forever, uh, shot down in the crime of their lives and gone. I mean, if you look at the crime scene photos, they're pretty horrible. Yeah, I've seen them. They are horrible. And in the beginning, I did believe that it was all spoiled rich kids, want them dead now, want the money now. But with the abuse claims, maybe they do deserve another trial. But Like I said, that's just me. And I know the law and order aspect 
suggest that they should be still in prison, but they were 18 and 21 at the time. So maybe they've had some type of maturity, but there's an interesting law in California too, which does not apply to a no parole, a life sentence, no parole murder, which is they will grant you a retrial if you're under 25 when you've offended because they've shown that basically that your mind doesn't fully develop until you're 25. I frankly, though, I think that house was hell. It doesn't justify a murder, but my God, talk about toxic. Talk about their mom would say stuff to them like you ruined my marriage with Jose. She was like devoted to like you ruined my you ruined my life. What kid wants to hear that? I do think there is something to be said for a kid needs to be loved and safe and feel home and maybe turn them into psychopaths. I don't know. That's the other thing is that maybe that toxic home life, sexual abuse and abuse yeah. uh, and control, maybe it turned them into little psychopaths. Okay, that's, know? That's, that's what you I know, think. You know, and, yeah. and so that becomes more complicated because then it's kind of chicken and egg. I think that that aligns with what I think was created in that house. I agree. I think it was a hell house. I don't believe in creating a vigilante type of justice system where we make it okay to then go down and gun your parents down because they had other options. They had way more options than most people have. Maybe, I mean, they did have more options, like they could have left or whatever and, you know, things like that. But maybe they, I'm not, like I said, justifying their actions by any means, but maybe they didn't realize, they, they didn't know what they could do at 18 and 21. Maybe they're like, well, we have to kill them if we want money because if we leave, we'll be broke. They I, did want the money. I mean, they didn't want to just leave without the money. I mean, let's yeah. be right. clear. They did not want to leave and be poor. They didn't want to leave without the money. They wanted to leave with the money. They felt entitled to it. They felt they deserved it. And they wanted the parents gone. Yeah, but but I think it's somewhere in between. Like, I don't really look at the situation like either or. Like, they were like greedy little bastards who just blew away their parents for the money. Or they were these poor, abused children. I think it was both. I think it was both. I think they did want the money. I think they did want the Porsche and the Rolex and the this and the Jeep and the $60,000 tennis coat. But they also came from hell, too. And I don't think it has to be an either or. In my mind, it's not an either or situation. No, it can be both. I want to also add they were separated for, uh, I think, 18 years. And now they are together in the same prison. Oh, are they really? Six years ago, they were finally granted the right to be in the same prison. Mm, and they're, they're both very, very active in prison. They lead mindfulness groups. Eric's the head of like government in his prison. So they are good members of the prison society. They do think, <laughs> I mean, they're both married. Yes, yes. I was going to mention that. I wasn't sure about both of them. I knew one of them was married. Yeah, I think Eric has been married twice. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how girl, that works out, but yeah, do they have yeah, conjugal but- visits. With life sentences, I don't think they, they mm. have them. But, well, there's no lack of women writing them, I'm sure, when there's like oh, yeah. 10 million TikTokers. <laughs> That's a phenomenon I'll never really understand. I get the unavailable man thing, but you know what, ladies, they're in their fifties now. They're not 18 yeah. and 21 anymore. Like they're yeah, in their fifties well, yeah. now. Oh, I'm saying they still may be handsome. And a lot of women my age at 30 want them older. And cause they feel like, <laughs> well, I feel like a lot of men when they're twenties and thirties are very immature. And I mean, they don't care if he's in prison or not. If he's 50, he must be mature. And a lot of people's minds, I don't know, but it's a trend now. I have friends that two friends that are married to men twice their age and it's kind of not my thing but 
Hey. Well, Simone, go older, just don't go in prison. <laughs> Stay away oh, from the well. prisoners. <laughs> Find oh, a prosecutor. They are obviously appealing to people. I, I think they did what they did. I mean, that's the truth. The brutal reality is they did what they did. You cannot get around that fact. I mean, it wasn't just a couple of shots to the chest. Jose Menendez, half of his head was caved, like his face was gone. Right. I also would suggest anybody read the book, Robert Rand's book on the case. He's actually a big advocate of theirs, but and I'm Mm. not, but I feel like it was written in a very fair way, really looked at both sides. And even though I disagree with his perspective, I do feel like he presents the evidence in a very fair way and presents it so that you can make your own decision, even if it's different than his, which I really appreciate from a journalist because I don't think you find that a lot anymore. So I really want to advocate for that book. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah read it too. We have different perspectives and I just, I thought he did a good job. I will definitely put it in the show notes, a link to the book if it's available to buy or purchase or rent. Well, I will definitely put a link to that. But I do want to go ahead and say thank you guys, Sarah and Laura, for coming on 90s Crime Time. Do you have any last words for this case or anything? It's really fun to listen to someone of a different generation and have a different perspective. And we would love to encourage all your listeners to check out Ivy League Murders. We're oh, please do. And all, all of our listeners to check out 90s Crime Yes, Time. and that oh. we love collaborations because <laughs> it gives us, our listeners, the opportunity to check you out, vice versa. And we will definitely be binging 90s Crime Time. We encourage all oh. our listeners to do the same because you're so Thank awesome. You. Oh, Thank thanks. you. Thank you. Murder, murder, murder.